0: All right, and today's date is Sunday, June 13th, and we are starting from the big book of AA, pages XXVII. Karen C. will be our reader of the text, followed by a 20-minute share by Terry W., Go ahead, Karen.
1: Hi, this is Karen C. recovered compulsive overeater in New Jersey. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, We are perhaps not well-equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of this, these men as we, as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of, of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. We see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children, Let the solving of these problems become part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And I pass, thank you.
0: Thank you, Karen. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker. Um, our speaker today is Terry W. from Massachusetts. I'd like to thank Terry um, for her service. And I'm really um, grateful that you're speaking today. And I can't wait to hear what you have to share on these pages. So Terry, go ahead and start.
2: I'm Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for the introduction, Maria. I um, would like to thank Kim Ji for inviting me here today and also for so many of my friends that showed up to support me this morning. So um, the doctor's opinion is truly the foundation of the entire big book and and the fellowship as well. And it tells us the book is about what we're gonna get in return for studying this 12 steps and what we're gonna get out of the book. And if any, I honestly, honestly feel like God put me here today to talk about this letter because of the fact anybody that all that knows me knows I'm obsessed with the doctor's opinion, <laughs> absolutely obsessed with the doctor's opinion. And um, about a month ago, I did a talk and the title of the talk was Terry's Opinion Versus the Doctor's Opinion. So I hope I can get through this without crying. This is a really moving letter for me. So this morning, I'm gonna talk a little bit about myself real quick. I'll uncover what's written in this letter and share with you two, two life-changing events that occurred in my life because of this letter, which are pretty remarkable. Uh, a little bit about me, I have been in OA 30 years. I came in actually twice. First time was a, from severe anorexia, and the second time was from severe bulimia. Um, and it's fine. I was raised in Newton, Massachusetts, and back then, 30 years ago, we did not study the steps in our meetings. And actually, if somebody talked about the steps in our meetings, they were look down upon like they were breaking the rules. Uh, we had what was called A-walls, which was a separate study of the steps. But so from my experience growing up, the, to- the um, steps were not mentioned at our meetings. We used what's called the tools, which we still all use today. Anyways, the meetings, the calls and all of that. So um, out of those 30 years, 24 of those i have been abstinent. And for me, that means not eating flour or sugar. I absolutely cannot without, I I absolutely cannot put those in my mouth. There's no question. Um, And it wasn't until I studied the steps a year and a half ago that I became recovered. And there's a big difference between being abstinent and being recovered. Um, Recovered means that I'm in fit spiritual condition, enough not to obsess about eating anymore or ever again. And the thought has been lifted from me. Um, It also means that I must stay in fit spiritual condition and I have to work the steps 10, 11 and 12 on a daily basis. I absolutely, truly fit the class of being a compulsive overeater. I remember when I was three, I climbed up on a shelf and I ate an entire bottle of baby aspirin. And they didn't have those child caps back then. Um, and then a year later I climbed up on the shelf again and ate a bottle of vitamins, the whole bottle because they tasted good. And then uh, I think I had to be around seven or eight. I had one of those toys, uh, Gumby and Pokey toys for us that are older, we know Gumby and Pokey. It was a, um, a rubber figure about 12 inches long. It had wire to bend it. Well, I ate the entire toy. I ate all the plastic off the, um, all the rubber off the toy down to the wire. And I remember saying, mom, look, I ate my Gumby. And, you know, holding up just the wire. And so things were not normal. Um, this was not normal behavior when I was even a small child. Um, and I always ate massive, massive amounts of food. I, I never gained weight, though, because I was a competitive gymnast. And later in my 20s, I was a competitive bodybuilder. So I never gained okay. weight. Um, well, I started off with the anorexia. And the bulimia came later in my life. Uh, my best friend started to throw up and she would teach me how to throw up. And I didn't want to, I just couldn't do it. And after a while, of course I did it. And of course she stopped and I didn't. Um, I truly feel helping others is what service, got the, God intended me to do the service. Um, I would never, ever, ever want a human being to go through the horrific hell that I've been through. And I'm truly blessed today that I co-create with God. And he is the one that fills my heart, Um, used to be the food. And today I reach for God and he's the one that fills that my heart with love. So I just want to, uh, that's a little bit about me. So about this letter, this is um, the second letter in this chapter from Dr. Silkworth and he was a American medical medical doctor and he had actually specialized in the treatment of alcohol and he treated more than 40,000 people back in the day. Um, alcohol was. This was his career, so he was looked upon as like one of the leading people in this field back in the day. So, for those people that are new today or um, have never read this chapter, the first letter at the beginning of this chapter was written in July 1938, and that first letter focused on the spiritual remedy. And this second letter, which we just read, focuses on the allergy consists of two parts: the physical craving and the mental obsession. So when we start off with the letter, it starts. The subject presented in this book seems to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcohol addiction. So we look at that word paramount. I mean, that's the first word that stood out to me, and I looked up the definition in the Big Book Dictionary, and paramount means of chief concern or importance. Um, so we begin this whole letter by you know this we have to pay attention because this is important great after the first sentence. He then goes on, I say after many years experience as a medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcohol and drug addiction. So this hospital began um, as a private hospital years ago. It was located on, I think it was 293 Central Park in Mattapan, New York, not Mattapan, in New York. And the hospital is named the Charles B Town Hospital. Um, and it was known for drying out alcoholics who were, who were very wealthy at the time. Apparently, you could not get treated unless you, you paid before you even went. So it started off being as a, like a place for wealthy people. Um, there was therefore a real sense of satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on this subject, which, I, which is covered in such masterly details in these pages. So I looked at the word masterly because I, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, you know. So if we look at this word, the definition is resembling that of a master. So the the knowledge or or superior skill is what that definition is. So at the beginning of this letter, we know that Dr. Silkworth is backing up his credentials right off the bat, right from the beginning. It goes on, we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. With our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well-equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside synthetic knowledge." So first of all, what is moral psychology? Um, It's interesting because William Silkworth has superior credentials, and here he's actually humbling himself, saying and admitting that the medical society cannot help us. Um, And that's a big thing for a doctor to say that he doesn't have the capability to cure cure us compulsive overeaters. Um, They can help in other ways, you know, through meditation um, and medication and hypnosis surgeries. They used to do lobotomies back then in the day. um, And it didn't seem like many of these actually made a difference to a lot of the, the people. They'd still come back and they would still not be able to live sanely without thinking about food constantly or alcohol. So in the 1950s, that was the first time that actually any of this stuff started, with Freud coming along, started looking at the different, you know, maladies like hysteria, dementia, mania, all these things started coming about in the 50s. So back then, there really wasn't name for things. Um, And also in this this paragraph, I really wanna stress um, that the medical profession cannot help us, but, what he's saying is we must have a spiritual awakening. And that is the key to this letter, a spiritual awakening. And that's where we apply the powers of God or higher, someone else's, um, whatever they call their God. Um, they lay outside the knowledge of the medical profession. So only a spiritual awakening as a result of working in the steps will make it possible for us to have a same relationship with food. So let's talk about the meaning of spiritual awakening. I always thought of spiritual awakening is when lightning came down hit me on the head. Like literally, this is what I thought it was. Like, what is a spiritual awakening? Um, the big book describes a spiritual awakening. Plainly, as a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, and we actually act different. So we think different, and we act different. So many years, goes on to say, many years ago, one of the leading contributors of this book came under our care in the hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application at once. Um, Okay, here we're talking about Bill Bill Wilson, just so you know what we're talking about. Uh, Later, he reported the privilege of being allowed to tell a story to other patients here, and with some misgiving was consented. The cases we have followed through have kept. Most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. Um, so, what we talk about here is later he requested the privilege of being able to tell a story. Bill did, and when I remember, I asked my sponsor, I "Go, what do you mean?" It, it, they they said that he could do it without some misgiving, and apparently that was because you know Bill kept saying he'd be on the wagon, he'd be better, he'd be on the wagon, he'd be better. But this time he's actually changed. Um, so. I think the cases were followed through most have been interesting, in fact, when he said they're unselfish of these men. And I, you know, I have to say, I cannot believe that a woman spent an hour, two hours a day with me every morning, seven days a week, teaching me the steps and going through the big book. Like who does that? I didn't have to pay her. Um, I was, I, I couldn't believe that someone spent that much time with me. I, I was above my conception, it was amazing for me. And I didn't think anybody really cared about me, actually. And this was, you know, someone actually did care. Uh, and then the, the, the paragraph talks about um, how it pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of hell. Um, yes, we're talking about how unselfish these men are. And I, as I said, I couldn't believe that woman gave me like two hours a day. Um, today, I honestly feel it is my calling to sponsor other people. I receive much joy from sponsoring and they also teach me so much when I do sponsor. And as again, the powers that that pull us back from the gates of hell, the first thing to notice in that sentence is P is capitalized. So read again, that's of importance. And um, so I can tell you I was at the gates of hell without even question. Uh, the first time was when I was anorexic, anorexic, which I had mentioned prior. My weight was in the low 70s, and everywhere I walked, I thought I was going to faint and pass out. and I was dizzy. Everyone thought I had cancer because I was so like a skeleton. And um, I, I, there's one situation I'll never forget. I had a bartending job, and I had to get white shorts for that job. And you know, I know normal sizes were much too big for me, so I went to the juniors department, and those were too huge too. And it ended up where I had to go in the child's department and bought shorts that fit a 12-year-old. That was like mortifying to me, mortifying that I fit in clothes for 12-year-olds. I would eat my food, I'd spit it out and put it in a nap and throw it out. I would hardly eat anything. Um, Like I'd eat five raisins for lunch one day and my diet consisted of like drinking milk uh, in my tea and chewing gum. My laxative abuse was horrific. Um, I moved to Belgium for two years. I I lived there and I went to school there. And um, I knew the name of every laxative in in French. It was really pathetic. The second time with the gates of hell was when I was bulimic. Um, I didn't know things can get that bad. My day consisted of the following. This was my day every day being bulimic. I would wake up at six in the morning. I would call the bakeries and order three dozen donuts and have them triple dipped. So I could pick them up later. I would spend the day going to different supermarkets, getting all my binge food for the day. And you know, it came to about $130. That's how much I ate a day. And in also every day, I got a huge, large, like a graduation size sheet cake. And I had my happy birthday terry on it. And I ate one of those every day and uh threw that up. And I had to do a lot of supermarkets because I didn't want them, although it really wasn't my birthday. But um Yeah, so I would stop shopping and at four o'clock in the afternoon after I arranged everything, I would binge and throw up and binge and throw up till three in the morning. So my entire day for months and months and months was only three hours out of the day I was not thinking about food, which is like so sad. My life was so unmanageable. I I didn't have any friends, I didn't have boyfriends, no job, no money. I sold all my jewelry to get money for my food, couldn't pay my bills and couldn't pay my rent. Today, I have no teeth on my upper right at all, and I have no teeth on my bottom left from binging and purging. And what really got me into um, knowing I, I was a compulsive way of eater and had a problem is the food controlled me. I could not stop eating the food, it controlled me. So the letter goes on and says Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor and often requires a definite hospitalization period procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. I agree with this statement. Um, I can remember, I have experienced this actually. When I was anorexics, I used to steal things. I don't know why, I would never do that today, but I used to steal things from the electronics departments when I was anorexic. I don't know why I thought I'd get away with it because they were large items, but I got caught. And I put me to cell for the day and um, they gave me a court date to come back to court. Well, you know, I'm above the loss. So I did tons of research, uh, like tons of research, because I was such a good student back then. And a lot of the research showed and proved that anorexics, 90% of them steal. And, you know, I presented that to the judge. I said, you know, I want you to know I'm anorexic. She's like, yeah, I can see that. And I told her, you know, all my, present, all my research and she let me go. Um, but it's just weird how I, like what I get from that is exactly what this sentence is talking about. I could, I should have been hospitalized back then because you know what was wrong? My electrolytes were off. So I did not think straight. So if you gave me the steps to study, I could not have even had a clue what you were talking about. So I can understand I should have been hospitalized. Um, and I'm glad I didn't do the steps at the beginning because I wouldn't, I wouldn't understood anything. It would have meant nothing to me. So when they talk about that hospitalization, I agree with that a hundred percent. That's just my my opinion. Um, and then the, the, it goes on to say, sorry, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of the alcoholic on these Sorry, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy allergy, and the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average tempered drinker. These allergic types types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Once having formed the habit, they found they could not break it. Once having had the self-confidence, the reliance upon things human, the problems pile up and they Become staunchly difficult to solve. This to me is one of the most important paragraphs, important paragraphs of the entire book, in my opinion. This paragraph saved my life, honestly, um, because we just, def- first of all, let's define the word allergy. Um, the definition of allergy that I found is when a craving occurs, I cannot control the amount of food that I eat. An allergy is, damaging immune response that a body has to a substance that you eat, especially pollen, fur, particular foods. And it, it, it makes us hypersensitive. So this is a key paragraph and extremely important because this paragraph is a pedestal to the rest of the entire book. If we don't understand that we have an allergy and a, a mental twist, which is gonna come later on, we're never gonna be able to go to step, go are gonna understand the other steps, they just won't be effective. So here we learned from this paragraph that the compulsive overeater is eating for an effect. All human beings have emotions. We have love, anger, hate, resentment, shame, et cetera, but we're human, so we all have those emotions, but the emotions build up to a level when they become uncomfortable for me and many other compulsive overeaters. And what happens is my mind wants to seek out what's gonna make me feel better immediately. And that for me is food, it makes me feel better immediately. And actually, in all actuality, I've heard it only makes you happy for like seven seconds after all that. But to a compulsive overeater, the food is not the problem, which was a surprise to me. I always thought it was the problem, didn't you? Well, food is is the answer to the problem. Food becomes the answer to the problem because when emotions build up in a normal eater, they go for a walk, they run, they jog, they go to the gym, they talk about it. But they, they can't, um, they, they, they can get that out of their system. For me, like I'll eat one cupcake. Well, let's put it this way. Someone normal will eat a cupcake and they'll go, oh, this is great. And then they'll finish it and they'll walk away. For me, um, I'll put something in my mouth that red light goes on and it does not shut off like a normal person. I go on and on and on and on and binge for hours and hours and hours and hours. I cannot stop. You know, and then I say, my mind tells me I don't want to do that because I don't want to get heavy, but it keeps going on and on and on, that the crazy circle. So now let's talk about the problem. Okay, that was the answer to the problem food. So the problem is that I have so much pain in my head that, and in my heart when I'm not eating, that I eat. So when I'm not eating, I feel fear, anger, resentment. I feel horrific. But anytime my emotions meet my intellect, emotions always win. So I know I shouldn't eat all that food um, because I can't stand the pain of not eating even though my life has been ruined and unmanageable. But I think this time I will not eat too much. I can just have a few or maybe I can stop after two or three and this time will be different. It's not how it is. This is what drives me into the food and it's not because of circumstances. It's not because I was molested when I was a child. My mother's boyfriend stabbed himself 25 times in the leg in my house. We washed blood off all the walls. He tried to kill us three or four times a week. And I remember my mother used to pick us up and drive us to my grandmother's in the middle of the night. That's not why I ate. I didn't eat because my mother hated me and told me I was stupid. It has to do because of the way I'm wired. And this is what we're talking about here. The food becomes the answers to my problems, but the real problems is the buildup of my emotions. So actually food was the problem. The doctors, psychologists and medical centers would all be able to cure us. But as the doctor points out, the only thing that can cure us is a spiritual awakening as a result of studying the steps in the big book of AA. There's no other way I'll get relief from this pain that, that comes to the result of eating. I must put down my allergic foods. And here we are, we just talked about an allergy and everybody has different allergic foods. Mine in particular are flour and sugar. Um, because that triggers the allergy and that triggers that mental twist and the obsession of the mind. So why don't other people eat massive amounts of food like me? I don't get it. Other people don't get the effect I do when I eat food. Others have willpower and I don't. You know, as I say, it's like a light bulb. One person eats something, the light goes on, they like it, the light goes off. For me, as I said before, the light goes on and it does not shut off. So um, what happened to me was I could not control how much food I ate. And I kept from eating because of the mental twist. This means I'm powerless. My life was so unmanageable, as I had said. And what I learned from this book is there, there is a way to live without my mind being obsessed about food all day. It's by the process of allowing God to enter into my life. This process of letting God, my higher power into my life is so, God gives me the power to co-create and allow him to do what I can't do for myself. So it comes down, I have no power. I seek power and God is power. And now I substitute the effect of food on a spiritual awakening as a result of studying these steps. The letter goes on, frothy emotional appeal sen- seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have death and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. I had no idea what fraught the emotional appeal was. And I even looked it up in the dictionary like five or six times. And, I, you know, from what I understand and I get out of it, it's a message that typically a family will give, um, say, their father or the mother, to, um, want them to get better, you know. Um, but the family, they, we can't relate to the alcoholic. So that doesn't, up, you know, really help them stop drinking. So in an addict's view, especially, um, within the 12 step tradition, um, what, you're not an addict, so you're not going to understand what's wrong with me. So, um, that's where the, it's deemed frothy, you know, kind of like meaningless and ignorant is where that comes from. And we can share the message that has depth and weight. Um, so here we go on. If any feel that psychiatrists directing a hospital of alcoholics will appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line to see the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of them become part of their daily work and even their sleeping moments. And the most cynical wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement. You know, and I I asked my sponsor, I don't get, you know, what's the firing line mean? I I had no idea. And she said to me, yeah, Terry, you know, we have these doctors and we don't think about that. They're seeing the families crying, the children being hurt. They see all the pain, you know, these doctors, and we don't even think about that. And, you know, it's just amazing that they say this altruistic movement, you know, is the way, is the answer. And you know, I didn't understand what altruistic meant either. You know, it means I want to help other people and they want to help other people. And we all want to help other people, and we don't get paid for that, which is amazing. Um, do I have any time left?
0: You're a little bit over, but you can just summarize, you know, you're you're good.
2: Okay, so I won't, I just I have a lot more, so I'm just gonna summarize. I could talk about this for hours. So there's two things that changed my life. I just want to hop on really quick. The first thing was I I have an allergy. I never understood that. I have an allergy. That means it's not my fault. I'm not stupid. I'm not dumb. I, I never thought I really had an allergy. Like, this explains what's wrong with me. Like, I never understood that. Like, it changed my whole life. And the second one is that, you know, I always thought I was stupid in everything I did. And I'm not stupid because if I when I say I'm stupid, I'm 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 insulting God. I'm a child of God and I'm not stupid. So um my life's dream was to get my PhD, and that's the only thing I wanted out of life. That was the only thing that mattered to me that that validated me. And you know what? I learned I actually have three master's degrees, and I'm still not happy until I read the steps and study the steps because I don't need a PhD unless God wants me to work work through. It him through me to help other people. You know, that was my life dream and it's not anymore. You know, my life dream is to help others as they've done for me. So thank you so much for listening to me today. I hope that um,
0: you got something out of it.
2: And I just again, thank you for letting me share.
0: Thank you so much, Terry. Um, You did a fantastic job just um, shedding some light on those those pages. You did a fantastic job. And I was so glad and so grateful to my higher power for letting me hear it today.